thanks for checking out this message from Springmount Church. For more information about us and what we do, visit our website, springmount.church. Why not check out all the different groups that run throughout each week in Barrow and on Walney? And join us every Sunday from 11am at Salt House Pavilion in Barrow Infernos. If you would like us as a church to pray for you, please email prayer at springmount.church or sign up on our website for monthly news straight to your inbox. I hope you've had a great Christmas. Anyone learnt anything this last year? We're on the last day of the year. Anyone learnt anything really valuable this year? Go on. Don't lose your car keys, Rebecca McElgorm. Or, even better, don't lose somebody else's car keys, yeah? <laughs> Courtesy car keys, even worse. Always check your coat pockets. That's all I would say. Anyone else learnt anything important? Tell your wife you're going to be home five minutes before you go home so you don't have to stand outside. In fairness, I offered him to sit in my car till you got there. But hey, domestic. They've only been married six months, but hey, there we go. Anyone, any, anyone else learn anything this year? Get on and do it. Stop faffing around. Get on, are you talking to me now? You just <laughs> that what you're saying? Get on and do it. Stop faffing about. Yeah, okay. Or well, is it... Is it um, if at first you don't succeed, don't try skydiving. That's the other one. Okay. <laughs> so, we've looked over Christmas at a series of um, the case for Christmas. We based it around a few things that Lee Strobel wrote. And the idea being that we looked at the evidence behind the story of Jesus, the birth particularly. But now Christmas has been and gone. Who's put the decorations down already? Well, this afternoon's job. Okay. I was this afternoon, I was told Ros was doing it yesterday, but I came home and said not, so <laughs> that's fine. Next week, they need to come down, but the decorations are back in the boxes for some people, all the rubbish has gone to the tip, who's eaten all the chocolate already? Nearly, I'm just trying my best to not eat all my chocolate already, but um, yeah, so actually, we're after Christmas now. And after Christmas, it's important not to just look at the case for the birth of Jesus, but it's important to look at actually the rest of the story. And I think things come in threes, don't they? People say everything comes in threes, yeah? So um, in this case, we've got the birth, the death, and the resurrection, and actually then he's coming back again. So in terms of Jesus, it's fours. But actually, we want to look today at the evidence behind the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If you've not been with us, at the beginning of December, we looked at the, the, the authenticity of the Gospels. How reliable are they? And we said no historian would deny the authenticity of the Gospels, accounts of Jesus. We remember Luke looked at it and he started off by saying, I've carefully researched it, I've carefully looked into it, I've interviewed eyewitnesses, I've spoken to the people who were there, and you can be sure that this happened. And then there's evidence in the New Testament book of Acts and all the letters that the, the proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven was a part of that church creed from two to three years after Jesus rose again. So all of these things come together to point to the evidence of Jesus was. Then we looked at the prophetic evidence. That's like fingerprints. If you remember the prophecies of Jesus, if eight of them were accurate, it was like all those silver dollars was it two foot deep over the state of Texas and one of them being marked and you're picking one? That's impossible. 
But for over 48 prophecies to be absolutely right in matching in Jesus, that means one trillion, 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 13 trillions it is. That's amazing. Not likely to be by chance. So today, I want us to consider what would be called circumstantial evidence. So circumstantial evidence is evidence on its own that perhaps wouldn't necessarily go an absolute definite. It's things that you look at after you've looked at the eyewitness testimony, you've looked at the fingerprints and the DNA, and you've looked at the the historical stuff, and then actually you look at things and you go, there's got to be a reason for that happening. And you add that on, and it's like the icing on the cake. So a bit like we, uh, my mum and dad used to... um, well, they, they looked after a young girl who was about 14, and she had a reputation uh, for being a little bit light-fingered. And so you couldn't leave things around the house because it would go missing. And we'd bought, um, we'd bought some biscuits and some vouchers for Christmas presents. And one day, we discovered the biscuits and the vouchers had gone missing. So actually, the circumstantial evidence would be this girl was in our house... She has a reputation for taking things, so it must be her. You can't say that, though, can you? There's no definite clue that it's her. However, we did find the empty tin of biscuits under her bed. So, we knew she'd taken the biscuits. So, we then assume that she's taken the vouchers. Quite what that 14-year-old girl would want with Marks and Spencer's vouchers, which is what they were. I don't know. But maybe she liked Percy Pigs. Who knows? But the circumstantial evidence then points again to us, say, well, it must be her. She must have taken the vouchers. So for a long time, we were like, 40 quid, I think it was, or 50 quid. She's taken those vouchers. That's terrible. Until our car got stolen and written off. And I had to go and empty the glove box. And there at the back of the glove box was the vouchers. So I could have looked at that circumstantial evidence and gone, she's definitely done it. But actually on its own... It perhaps isn't enough. It can add up to things, but we've got to be careful that we don't just use that. But actually, I want to point to some pieces of evidence that actually add together, and I believe make compelling and overwhelming icing on the cake in the story of Jesus. And actually to show you the truth of Jesus. If you're a Christian this morning, it should encourage us. We're going to look at several pieces of evidence that on their own, you might not be enough to convince somebody. But we've also got to remember that the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts. Yeah, I can give you all the facts under the sun. I can give you all the information you need to say, if you look into this, you will find this to be true. But we've got to pray for the Holy Spirit to do his work, to move amongst us, to change our hearts. So, first piece of evidence is this. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12 says this. On the first day of the week... Very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them, and in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his, that's Jesus' words. 
When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, that's the disciples, and to all the others. It was Mary, Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Really important here. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. That's the grave clothes. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, you might have read those verses many, many times. But I think as we read those verses, there's bits we perhaps just skip over because we're so used to them. But actually, this is Luke trying to write an account of what happened. He's researched it carefully. He's looked carefully. He's spoken to eyewitnesses. He's done all those things. And we see here several women going to put spices at the tomb of Jesus so that the body hadn't stunk and gone off. And these several women were, we had Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, it says, and the others with them. So there's more than three people here. That's quite a good selection of eyewitnesses, would you agree? More than three people go down to the tomb, the tomb that was, they knew whose tomb it was because it was given to Jesus. It was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, so everybody would know where that was. And actually, they go down to the tomb and find he's not there. Not only is he not there, the big heavy stone that seals the tomb has gone. And so they go back to the disciples and they say, listen, this is what's happened. But what do the disciples do? They don't believe. These are the people closest to Jesus. Remember, Luke has carefully researched. We've already established that the gospel accounts are seen as reliable and accurate. Women being reported as the witnesses would have been seen as unreliable. If you wanted to make something up to sound good, you wouldn't have the women finding the tomb empty. But Luke researched it and recorded it faithfully. He didn't want to make something up. He was just writing what happened. And the women found the tomb empty. But the 11 disciples thought they were crazy. Don't skip over that. The 11 people that had been closest to Jesus, who'd heard Jesus say, I'm going to come back to life, I'm going to rise again, several times, these women come back and say he's rose again, and they don't believe him. They don't believe them. They spoke with him, you know? They hadn't bothered themselves to get up and go. They hadn't bothered to make the effort. Is that us today? We're not bothered to make the effort to look into this for ourselves. The women went because they had a duty and they wanted to do it, but they didn't believe the women. But those disciples became the early church. What made them change their mind? Was it just the empty tomb? No. It was because after the empty tomb, they spoke with him. They wrote, walked with him. They were with him. And they saw him in flesh. It wasn't just the empty tomb. It was the appearance of Jesus to them. The next piece of evidence is the variety of appearances of Jesus. You know, some people try and explain this away as a mass hallucination. That people on mass saw it or that people were just seeing things. But let's look at the variety of appearances of Jesus. He appeared to men. He appeared to women. He appeared to friends. He appeared to his enemies. He appeared at different times of day. He appeared inside and outside. He appeared with small groups, large groups. There was no single hallucination that can be blamed on just one person. And he appeared on several occasions to the same people. 
That's not just coincidence, is it? And that's written down because somebody saw it. Third piece of evidence, the family changed their opinion due to two factors. Matthew, sorry, Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. This was before Jesus' death. This was what Jesus went to the house. So Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 21 says, Then Jesus entered the house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family, that's Jesus' family, his mom, his brothers, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. His family said, he's crazy. He's mad. He's crazy. What on earth is he doing? The family thought he was delusional at first. Why do you think the gospel writers recorded that? Surely that's not a good thing to write down, is it? But actually, they were being faithful to the events. They were writing down what happened. And Jesus' family believed he was mad at this point. John chapter 7, verses 1 to 5 says this. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. So he didn't want to go to Judea because the leaders were trying to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of the tabernacles were near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea. Why? Any ideas? Why would his brothers want him to go to a place where he was in danger of death? Because they just wanted to get rid of him. They thought he was mad. They didn't want him to be embarrassed in their family's names so that you may so leave Galilee, go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Okay? So we've established his own brothers did not believe in him while he was there performing miracles saying what he said. This little incident He's basically saying, I hope he gets arrested and killed. Yet after his death and resurrection, we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, this. The disciples and all the followers of Jesus had been told to go to Jerusalem. They'd gathered in a room to pray and to wait on the Holy Spirit. And we see this. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his Others. Something's changed. What? This man who they said he's crazy that they don't believe who they've seen and know he's died. Something's changed. And it's not just the fact that he's died, it's the fact that he's rose. He's seen them, they've seen him. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, that Jesus appeared personally to James' brother after he died and rose again. Do you know, if my brother were to die, sorry, Phil, if you're listening, if my brother were to die and then come back to life, I don't think that would be enough to make me think he was God. I think if my brother died and came back to life, it would be a miracle, wouldn't it? I don't think I'd suddenly start thinking he was God. Just like Mary and Martha, when Lazarus died and rose again, they didn't think Lazarus was suddenly God. They were just like, wow, what a miracle. But here we see a family witnessing that Jesus died and rose again. Suddenly changed their minds. That's sort of circumstantial evidence because we don't know their total testimony, but we know 
that something made them go from thinking he was crazy and not believing him to suddenly being his followers. James is the one we know the most about. James, his nickname was James the Just because he was a particular scholar of the Old Testament. So James, Jesus' brother, would know that the Messiah, the Christ, would be holy, righteous without sin, a speaker of truth, and almighty God. So James knew that that's what the Messiah would be. As his brother, he would be aware of his brother's character traits, wouldn't he? Now, Phil is a great guy, my brother. He's a great guy. But I wouldn't say to you that he was completely holy, righteous without sin, speaker of truth, and almighty God. Because he isn't. He's all right. He's not bad. But I wouldn't say all those things about him. Yet James studied the characteristics of the Messiah thought his brother at first was crazy and didn't believe him and yet then became the leader of the church. Why? Because he knew his brother was holy, righteous, speaker of truth and almighty God. The only explanation. It's the only explanation. You know, Phil isn't a great guy. He used to get banned from playing in the campus leaders football match at, at camp. Because he was so, you know, he was quite a calm and collected young man, but then he got on a football pitch and he was like wild. You wouldn't believe it. So he ended up having to referee it. And I think he liked the power, but anyway. In fact, you could say he's a very naughty boy, but anyway, it's a different link. But James, just James the Just, Jesus' brother, he led a church in Jerusalem and he wrote the book in the Bible that's got his name in it. So the things that added up for James was the resurrection and appearance to him of Jesus, his brother, and the purity of character that his brother had in life. Yeah? Would you agree? It's the only possible explanation. Third piece, Saul. This is a really, really obvious one. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So this is Saul breathing out murderous threats, wanting desperately to have permission of the authorities to arrest anybody who dares to follow Jesus. Does it sound like a nice guy? Yeah? Do you want to meet him? <laughs> this guy doesn't sound very nice at all. Sounds worse than Phil. <laughs> Sorry, Phil. But here is an intelligent Jewish man who is determined to see the followers of Christ wiped out. Yet. He didn't care who he found if they were followers of Jesus, whether they were men, women, children. He didn't care. He just wanted them dead or in prison. Let's carry on. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. That's quite an amazing turnaround at the moment, isn't it? 
suddenly the man who hates Jesus' followers becomes one. That is an amazing turnaround. The equivalent would be somebody like Adolf Hitler suddenly converting to Judaism. That is the equivalent. That is the equivalent of it. That would be miraculous. There would be something in it. And Saul becomes Paul and he's one of the most influential people in the last 2,000 years. If you were here, I think when Mark Curtis spoke, he said in the list of the 100 most influential people in history, Paul is in there. That's not Christians saying that. That's the world. Paul is in there. So Saul becomes Paul. He's willing to suffer because he believes in Jesus. Not just become a Jesus follower, but suffer, be imprisoned, be stoned, put to death, but get away. What turned him around? He saw Jesus and he realized the truth and it set him free. Simple. The equivalent, as I say, would be that. Or if Winston Churchill became a Nazi, maybe. That is the turnaround. And archaeology doesn't deny Paul and his journeys. You can travel across Turkey, Greece, all those places, and you can go to places where Paul stood and where Paul spoke. And he preached Jesus, crucified and risen, because he met him. Who likes a, a, a comeback? Yeah? I'm a, I know some of you know I'm a Liverpool fan. There was a very famous night in Istanbul where after about 20-odd minutes, Liverpool were 3-0 down in a big cup final. And uh, Joel wasn't as ma- massively bothered about football at the time, but it was a big cup final, so we were letting him stay up late. And about 30 minutes in, I said, Joel, you may as well go to bed. I said, there is no point. There's not a chance. We're playing against a really good team. 3-0 down. <laughs> Forget it. About 50 minutes in, I suddenly shouted up the stairs, Joel, get yourself down. (laughs) Because all of a sudden it turned. And everything turned around and it became something very different. And it was known as the miracle in Istanbul. That's what it's called. That game is called the miracle in Istanbul. Now, I don't know about you, but I think some footballers scoring three goals and then winning a penalty shootout isn't that miraculous. I don't know, you know, the, it, it was quite exciting and it was quite exceptional, but I don't really think it was miraculous. However, fourth piece of evidence was the disciples turn around. The disciples had lost the, the rabbi. They'd seen Jesus die. They were devastated. They'd gone back to work. They'd decided that they couldn't carry on. And then the next thing you know, stood in Jerusalem preaching Jesus Christ died and rose again, boldly stood on the streets declaring and thousands and thousands of Jewish people heard them and went, this has got to be true the early church was Jews converting to Christianity, to followers of the way, to following Christ that just doesn't happen does it? That people suddenly become from scared, terrified individuals of not even wanting to be seen with Jesus to suddenly being willing to stand out in the open and proclaim him. Now that's a miracle. It wasn't in Istanbul, but it was a miracle. How can we not see that turnaround? Number five, the quick spread. All of us know about COVID, don't we? 
How quickly did that spread around the world? Yeah? Well, do you know, within 300 years, Christianity, the church, dominated the Roman Empire and went on to dominate the Western world from pretty much 11 followers, plus a few extras. It spread. And today there are millions of people who still rejoice in Jesus. We can't argue that there was a virus, can we? Even if you don't like the vaccinations. We can't argue that there was an illness that spread. In the same way, you can't argue that the message of Jesus has spread and spread and spread. And it doesn't die out because he lives. Because he lives. The church became the church or the community of the resurrection. That's what it became known as, the community of the resurrection. Why? Because their main central point was Jesus didn't just stay dead, that he rose again. Do you know, it is very difficult to understand how 12 scared and doubting people turned the world upside down. It's very difficult to understand how one enemy hell-bent on destroying the truth of Jesus became actually the biggest spreader of that truth without explaining how. Because they met Jesus. Last two. Six. Sunday became the day of worship. Do you know where the, the one faith, I think, across the, the world that worships on a Sunday, the beginning of the week instead of the end of the week? The beginning of the week instead of the end of the week. Why is that? It's because it's linked to the resurrection of Jesus. It's because it's all about the fact that he rose again. Because he rose again on the first day. That's why we celebrate on a Sunday. The importance of bread and wine is to remember him till he comes again. Baptism, to show that we have died and risen. All of those things that we do are linked to his resurrection. And finally, all other possible explanations or excuses against the resurrection prove to be false. They proved to be false. Anybody else's argument against it, so all oh, the disciples stole his body. No, they didn't. They were scared. They were terrified. The guards were guarding it. Why would they allow that to happen? There's other reasons, and they all proved to be false. So over this last month, and I'm sorry it's been a whistle stop, and I've not been able to put all the information in, and it's a lot of facts, I know. I believe it's so important that we know that our faith isn't blind. Our faith is not built on clouds in the sky. Our faith is built on a rock that is Jesus. Our faith is built on a, a man who came from heaven, a man who was fully human and fully divine. Our faith is based on the rock of Jesus Christ, and it's based on the fact that he was born, yes, but he died and rose again. And the Bible tells us he's coming again for all of those who are his. So let me ask you this morning, are you his? I can give you all these facts, and I've tried to briefly pre present evidence and recognize the need for all of us to search. Don't just listen to me. Don't just listen to what I say. Do your research. Look into it. Use the right sources. But evidence alone is not always enough to convict because that's the Holy Spirit that convinces and brings revelation. So maybe as we come to the end of this year, maybe you could start the next one by praying and saying, God, show me 
Holy Spirit, speak to me. Holy Spirit, help me to understand. I've tried to present evidence that I don't think is refutable. I've tried to present some of the gospel stories that tell you what was seen and what was heard. Maybe pray that the Holy Spirit will move and confirm in your life that Jesus is risen indeed. That he was born, that he died and he rose again and that he's available to you today right now. He's available to you today right now. So maybe we end this year by accepting not just the evidence that is overwhelming, but by accepting a saviour who will be all we need if we just let him be. A saviour who was born in the town of David, of Bethlehem. A saviour who would become Christ the King and who wants to reign in our hearts today. Do you know him? Do you accept him? Do you believe him? The evidence, I believe, is there. But we need to open our hearts to who he is and say, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Can I invite the band up? As we pray, there's going to be, the prayer team will be at the back of the building, at the back of the room. Maybe you've not been before, maybe you've never been to a service, maybe, maybe I've been far too serious today. But um, if you want prayer for anything today, if you want anyone to pray with you, then please take the opportunity. As we worship, as we take, we're going to take communion, we're going to take the bread, we're going to take the juice to remember Jesus' body, his blood given, broken and shed for us so that we can be forgiven. So we're going we're gonna to take that in a moment as we worship. But there's going to be a time where you can go and receive prayer. Maybe this morning you've heard some of that evidence and you've gone, I need to just accept Jesus. Maybe that's you this morning. If that's you, go and speak to one of the prayer team and just say, please, can you help me? You don't have to say anything else. Please, can you help me? And then, I think, have you, Russell, have you got some things you need to say? Have you got just a quick thought? Uh, we're, we're at the back again to pray for you, but just um, very briefly, this might be something that's just between you and God today. The thought was from our meeting together as we prayed that I'm not going to dramatize this. I'm going to try and simplify it for myself. You've got some secrets you've got some secrets, and we've got an opportunity, and they do come to prayer. Speak to the Lord yourself about this today. This is the end of this year. And it's like God's saying to you, get this sorted out. Come clean. Stop that deception. Now is the time. Speak to me about it. Open up to me. Don't let this next year be the same as last. Deal with it. Let me break those chains for you. Let me set you free. Now is the time. That's not for you to come to pray with us this morning. That's something else. That's between you and God. Don't hold back. Now is the time. Release. Set yourself free. Give it to God. Open up to Him. 
Step forward. Be clean. Be fresh. Be renewed. Step over that sand line and let the Lord take you where he wants you to be. If that's for you, that's between you and God and you know it. You know it. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his, his death and his resurrection. And let us take this cup and this bread just to remember all that he's done. And Father, pray for any here who wants to receive your prayer, any here who wants to respond. I pray, Lord, that there will not be any fear in that. I pray, Lord, that they will be confident in knowing that they can come to you and they can give it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.